Okay, I've started the recording. Okay, well, welcome back, everyone. Let's start with a brief meditation, what we did last time. Start with thoughts of goodwill. Begin with goodwill for yourself. May I be truly happy. And think about what that means. You want to understand the causes for true happiness and be willing and able to act on it. So if true happiness requires that you change your ways, you're happy to change your ways. You're not saying just may I be happy as I am. And then send the same thought to others. And it's the same sort of thought. You're not saying simply, may you be happy or if someone is behaving in an unskillful way, it means may that person see the error of his or her way. And if there's anything you can do to help that person in that direction, you have to do it. There's no sense of wanting to get some revenge, see them suffer first before they change their ways. So you start with people close to your heart and then spread out in widening circles. Include people you like, people you don't like, people you don't even know. Not just people, living beings of all kinds. May we all learn to behave in skillful ways and reap the happiness that comes from our skillfulness. Focus on your breath. Take a couple of good long, deep in and out breaths. Notice where you feel the sensation of breathing in the body. And send your attention down near the navel. Locate that part of the body, part of the body in your awareness. <clears throat> and watch it for a while to see what kind of breathing feels good there. You can experiment with longer breathing, shorter breathing. Faster, slower, heavier, lighter, deeper or more shallow. Now move your attention up to the solar plexus and follow the same steps there. Locate that part of the body in your awareness. 
watch it for a while as you experiment to see what kind of breathing, breathing feels good there. And if you feel any tension or tightness in that part of the body, allow it to relax so that no new tension builds up as you breathe in. And you don't hold on to any tension as you breathe out. And now bring your attention up to the middle of the chest and follow the same steps there. And now up to the middle of the head. Here as you breathe in, think of the breath energy entering not only through the nose, but also through the eyes, the ears. And from the back of the head down from the top of the head, going deep into the brain. And as you breathe out, think of it radiating out from the head in all directions, working through any patterns of tension you may have in your jaws, in your forehead, around the eyes. And dissolving those patterns of tension away.
Now think of a line connecting from the middle of the head down to the navel. And as you breathe in and out, think of the breath energy coming into that line, going out of that line, radiating throughout the body. Now you're welcome to continue meditating as I give the talk for this afternoon. As I said this morning, the Buddha said there are three questions you ask when you're doing insight. The first is how to regard fabrications. The second is how to investigate fabrications. And the third is how to see them with insight. This morning we talked about how to regard them in terms of the five aggregates or the three types of fabrication. This afternoon we go into investigating and seeing with insight. Investigating basically means seeing how you actually are doing these fabrications in your meditation. Meditating in a way that makes you sensitive to the fact that fabrication is having is going on, shaping your experience. And at the same time, getting a sense of the relative value of different ways of fabricating your experience. Now, the Buddha taught that if you're going to develop insight, you have to develop insight together with tranquility. Either the insight comes first, tranquility comes second, vice versa, or ideally they happen together. And his instructions for how to develop both insight and tranquility at the same time are his 16 steps for breath meditation. You know, the insight will overcome ignorance, 
the tranquility will overcome passion. And working together this way, you get to understand fabrication much more clearly. So take, take an example of the Buddha's instructions on breath meditation. There are 16 steps altogether. They fall into four tetrads. The first tetrad deals with the body, the breath particularly. The second tetrad deals with feelings. The third deals with the mind. And the fourth deals with dhammas. These are basically the four foundations of mindfulness or the four establishings of mindfulness. With the first tetrad, the Buddha talks about one being excuse me, discerning long breathing, discerning short breathing, being aware of the whole body as you breathe in and breathe out. And then finally, calming bodily fabrication. Now it turns out bodily fabrication, as we mentioned this morning, is one of the three types of fabrication. That's the breath, in and out breath. The question often comes up, why does the Buddha have to use this technical term in his meditation instructions? And the reason, apparently, is that he wants to get you sensitive to the role of fabrication as, you're, as it relates to the breath and as it relates to the body. So you see the fact that there is an intentional element in your breathing. You can let the breath go on automatic pilot, but you can also have some conscious control over the breathing. And ideally, you want to see that you can calm the effect that the breath has on the body. In fact, it can get so calm that the in and out breathing stops when you reach the fourth jhana. And you realize that, that that stage of concentration where the breath is extremely subtle, this sort of subtle breath energy permeating the body, so subtle you don't feel a need to breathe in and breathe out, is a much more stable level of concentration and a much more peaceful state of mind than if your bodily fabrication, i.e. the in and out breath, is more active. Now in the second tetrad, which deals with feelings, he has you breathe in and out, sensitive to rapture, a sense of fullness in the body. You try to find a spot in the body, which is especially sensitive to the, how the breath energy feels, and allow it to feel precisely the kind of breath energy it would like to feel. In other words, you, you might say you pander to that spot in the body, and you get a sense of fullness right there. You can allow that sense of fullness to expand. And here again, you begin to see that your perception of the breath will have an effect. So we have the next step, which is to be sensitive, breathe in out sensitive to pleasure. You find the areas of pleasure in the body and you expand on them. You try to breathe in a way that maintains them and then allows them to spread through the body and then maintain that sense of pleasure filling the body. And then the Buddha says, you try to become sensitive to mental fabrication, which remember are feelings and perceptions. And you see how the role of the, your perception has plays a role in developing those feelings of pleasure, feelings of rapture. And the effect that it has on the mind. When the mind is bathed in pleasure like that, it's, its tendency to want to go out and find other things at that moment gets a lot weaker. It's a lot easier to stay concentrated. And then finally, you try to calm bodily, excuse me, mental fabrication. You're trying to find perceptions that are calming, feelings that are calming. And this can take you to extremely high levels of even, even the formless jhanas. And so here in the first eight steps, the Buddha is already talking about bodily fabrication, mental fabrication. 
And the instructions themselves are forms of verbal fabrication. You tell yourself, I will breathe in and out doing X. I will breathe in and out, sensitive to pleasure, sensitive to rapture, sensitive to the whole body. So you've got all three kinds of fabrication present there in those first eight steps. And again, the Buddha uses these technical terms, I think, to get you sensitive to the role that fabrication is playing in the shaping of your experience with something as simple as a breath. And then you begin to realize that these same fabrications will have an influence on the way you shape your experience outside of the meditation as well. Sometimes the question comes up, especially from people who like to focus straight on the mind as their meditation object. They say, why focus on the breath? When you die, the breath is going to stop. What are you going to do then? And the answer, of course, is, well, you haven't been focusing only on the breath. You've been focusing on this process of fabrication as you focus on the breath. And that gives you insight into how the mind was shaping things, not only when you're sitting around with norm normally living, but as death approaches, these, these processes of fabrication are going to be very important for you to be able to see and master. So you do the, so you go through the experience skillfully. So in the first case, you use bodily fabrication to get your mind past sensual thinking. You get a greater sense of the pleasure that comes that's not sensual, the pleasure that comes from inhabiting your sense of the body. And you begin to realize, okay, this pleasure of form is superior to the sensual pleasures, the pleasures that come from thinking about sensual, sensual pleasures. And you begin to see the value relative value of different kinds of fabrication. This also applies in the third tetrad, which deals with the mind. The Buddha says you breathe in and out sensitive to the state of your mind, then you breathe in and out trying to gladden the mind if the mind has been depressed or if its energy level is low. You breathe in and out trying to steady the mind if the mind has been scattered. And you breathe in and out trying to release the mind if the mind has been burdened with anything. And here again, you use the different types of fabrication, different ways of breathing, different ways of perceiving things that allow the mind to settle down, to get more solidly established or to get glad. If working with the breath doesn't gladden the mind, you can use other topics of meditation that do gladden the mind. You can think about the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. You can think about your own generosity. You can think about your own virtue. Times when you were tempted to do something you knew wasn't right and where you're able to say no. And you think about your own wealth, worth as a person that comes from that. Again, you're going to be engaging in perceptions and feelings as you do these things. You'll be also engaging in directed thought and evaluation as you direct your thought to a particular topic and you evaluate it in a way that gives rise to a sense of steadiness or a sense of gladness in the mind. So here again, you see the role of fabrication in real time. And you so you like, that affirms the fact of fabrication, that you really are shaping your experience more than you had seen before. And then at the same time, you see the value of different kinds of fabrication, that the more subtle the fabrication, the better it is. So this is, these are the steps in investigating fabrications so that you actually see that what the Buddha said about how you, you are fabricating your experience really is true. You can see it in real time and you see the relative value. The next step, seeing fabrications with insight, focuses on that last point in the, the third tetrad, was releasing the mind. Because here you're going to be trying to get the mind free from anything that's burdening it. 
In the fourth tetra, the Buddha talks about four steps. You focus on inconstancy, you focus on dispassion, you focus on cessation, and you focus on relinquishment as you breathe in and breathe out. The focusing on inconstancy relates to another teaching that the Buddha has. Basically, there are five steps for getting past anything that's burdening the mind, anything that the mind is clinging to that it should not be clinging to. The, the five steps are these. The first two steps, you look for the origination of that particular state of mind. The second one is you look for its cessation. The third is you look for its allure. What is attractive about, say, greed? What is attractive about anger? And then the fourth is you look at the drawbacks. If you go with that particular state of mind, what are, what are the bad effects going to be? And then finally, when you see that the drawbacks way outweigh the allure, that's when you develop dispassion, and that's the fifth step, which, which is you escape. That's when, when you release the mind from that particular type of defilement, whatever it is. For example, when anger comes, you want to be able to see what is it, how, how does it originate? This is not simply seeing it arise, but you want to see what's the cause, what sparks it? Why do you take delight in it? Or at what moment is there, the mind says, yes, I'd like to go with the anger. Oftentimes we say, you know, I don't like my anger. I, it's, it's driving me crazy that I get angry so easily. And yet still there's part of the mind that likes it. And you want to see that moment when the mind goes for it. And then the second step is seeing, okay, when anger comes, it's not monolithic. You know, anger comes and you may, may be thinking thoughts of anger off and on for a couple hours. But they're not always there for those couple of hours. They come, then they go, and then you have to dig them up again. The same happens with lust, the same happens with greed, the same happens with envy, any, any of these unskillful emotions. They come, and yet you dig them up again. And when you dig them up again, then you have to ask yourself, well, why do I, why do I want them back? What's the allure? What do I find attractive there? And this is part of the meditation that's going to require a lot, of, a lot of honesty on your part, because many times the allure is something you're embarrassed about, so you cover it up with many layers of other thoughts many layers of ignorance. We're mentioning this morning that when you're meditating, sometimes you, there's a decision made to leave the meditation object, and then you pretend that you didn't make that decision. And then as soon as there's a gap in your mindfulness, then, then you do go for whatever the, the distracting thought is. And so here again, you often you'll find that the allure is something you've buried under layers of denial. And so what you have to do is you go you dig up whatever you can see as what attracted you to that particular thought of anger. And then you think about the drawbacks. And then if you're able to let go, you say, okay, I was able to let go that time. Let's see if I can permanently let go. Well, often what happens is it comes back again and you go for it again. You say, well, in that case, it means I didn't really understand the allure. I've got to go back and look again. But it's this process of going through these five steps that you really can get past things that have been dominating the mind, that have been placing a burden on the mind and limiting the mind through, through its unskillful activity. Now, to go back these steps a little bit more detail, in both cases of steps one and two, the points to notice are, as I said, the Buddha here is talking about origination. He's not talking just simply about arising. He's talking about the cause. And as the Buddha said, the cause is that you there, you delight in something. 
And then from delight, there comes clinging. And once there's clinging, there's going to be a state of becoming that arises on that. You, you, you build up an identity based on that particular emotion. It's become your emotion. You are angry. You are greedy. And then you run with it. And then if you looked at the article, you notice I made the point that when the Buddha is talking about how this origination happens, it starts out in personal terms as that you delight. There's, there's a, an identity there. There's a person there that's delighting. And then from there, he says, you try to look at it and see it more in more impersonal terms. Now, remember, we talked earlier today about how the Buddha said, when you want to let go of something that would lead to a state of becoming, you have to get back to its raw material. And this doesn't apply only to the end of the path, but all the way along the path. You want to be able to look at this particular state of mind in impersonal terms. Seeing that where there's delight, then there's clinging. The question of who is clinging, who is delighting, put that aside. At that point, you want to get, you want to get yourself out of the picture. Now, this is not denying, it's not saying that there is no self there. Because that's, that's, again, that would be not focusing directly on what's actually happening. The Buddha wants you to look directly at these events as they're happening before they become a state of becoming. This is why I had that long section in the article and um, basically arguing with the two truth theory, the idea of being saying that on the ultimate level, there's nobody there. The Buddha never taught that. There are cases in the canon where he actually denounces the idea that there is no, like say, if one person kills another, that denying that there really was a killer or somebody killed. And that's wrong view. Instead of taking a stand on whether or not there is a self or whether or not there is a being there, he simply wants you to look at the events that are happening in the mind simply as events without any question of who's there doing this or is there nobody here doing this? Just what, what is happening? He wants you to look directly at these events. And seeing them as events, you begin to detach yourself to some extent from them. Because that puts you in a position where you're, you're better equipped to look at the allure and look at the drawbacks in fair terms, in objective terms. So those first steps, steps of the origination and seeing the passing away, those are establishing the fact of fabrication, that these, these states of mind are fabricated. There's an element of your intention in there. Years back, I was reading a piece by someone who was at a retreat center. And she was talking about how she developed a very strong sense of lust for the young man sitting in front of her. And it got so strong that she couldn't even be in the same hall with him. She had to go back to her room and meditate. And she said the insight that came to her as she was meditating in her room was that this was not her own personal lust. This was the cosmic lust flowing through her. This is precisely <laughs> this is precisely what the Buddha says is not the case. You, know? you are giving rise to the state. It is originating within you. And when it falls, falls away, it falls away because of a lack of delight that you've, you suddenly decide you don't want to go with this anymore. So there's the delight there. And the Buddha says that you delight in it. But then from the delight, he says, try to look at it in, in impersonal terms. Not to say that it's a cosmic phenomenon that's going through you, but simply you set this chain of events into motion. Can you pull yourself out and just look at the chain of events and see how you don't want to get involved? Which is precisely what the next three steps in that, that process are involved in. First, you see the allure, and then you look at the drawbacks. And this is where focusing on inconstancy comes in. All, all three of the, what 
the Buddha called the three perceptions come into play here. The perception of inconstancy, sometimes called the perception of impermanence, the perception of stress or suffering, and the perception of not-self. Now, some places these are called three characteristics. The Buddha himself never mentioned them as three characteristics. He describes them simply as perceptions and also as a kind of contemplation. You can contemplate inconstancy. You can contemplate stress. You can contemplate not-self. In other words, you're, you're trying to see what aspect of this, uh, this causal process that you've set into motion. Where are the drawbacks? You see that it's inconstant. So because it's inconstant, you can't get any, any solid benefit out of it. And if it's inconstant and stressful, say, why, why bother? And then the finally, the Buddha says, if it's both constant, inconstant and stressful, is it worth taking on? Is it worth identifying as you or yours? Here again, he's not asking you to come to a conclusion as to whether or not there is a self. He says simply that, look, this is a process of fabrication. You're engaging in this activity, creating this state. Is it worth it? Think of all the energy you've put into this greed, all this energy you're putting into the anger, the energy you're putting into the lust. What do you get as a result? And when you can see that it's not worth it, that's when you develop this passion for it, and that's the escape. Because all fabrications are driven by passion. In other words, you have you do them for the sake of something. When you see that well, it's not accomplishing the end that you wanted them for, then you stop doing the fabrication. The fabrications cease, and then you relinquish the whole the whole issue. In other words, you don't carry around and say, "Boy, I'm, that was really smart of me. I was able to overcome that anger really well." Of course, what happens then? Of course, pride develops. So you say, okay, that was taken care of, drop it. And that's a good attitude to be able to develop as you meditate because you're going to need precisely that attitude as the insights get more subtle and then go deeper in the meditation. Because after you've applied these perceptions, after you've applied this five-step program to things that are obviously unskillful, then the Buddha says you turn around and you apply it to the practice of concentration and insight itself. For example, in the case of concentration, we, the imagery we talked about this morning about the, the archer shooting the straw man or the, or the clay target. The Buddha describes it saying getting the mind into a state of concentration and get really, get really good at it. If you try this kind of analysis when the concentration is not yet solid, it'll just fall apart. So wait until you get really good at it and then you start looking at it and say, realize, okay, these, this state of concentration I'm engaged in right now, it too is con composed of aggregates. As I said earlier, then there's the form of the body, which is the breath, there's the feeling of pleasure, there's the perception that holds you with the pleasure, there are the fabrications that you, you think about and you talk to yourself, you direct a thought and evaluation around the object, and finally consciousness, which is aware of all these things. So you see the concentration is composed of these aggregates. And then you apply the perceptions of not self, stress, excuse me, of inconstancy, stress, not self, to those aggregates. And then you engage in an act of judgment that you would like to turn away from them. And this is actually a verbal fabrication that says, wouldn't it be better to go for the deathless? This would be exquisite. This would be peaceful. In order in being able to get beyond this fabricated state. 
Now, if you can do this skillfully enough, the Buddha says, everything stops. You've developed this passion for the process of fabrication, the concentration stops. And two things can happen. Either you can gain full awakening, or if when you gain a perception that you know there is a deathless element there that is there when you stop the fabrication, you develop a passion for that, then the, in, then the awakening will not be complete. And this is why you have to turn the perception of not self onto the discernment of the deathlessness itself. This is why when the Buddha says, you know, all, all fabrications are, are inconstant, all fabrications are stressful, but all phenomena are not self. In other words, if you create a sense of self around the deathless, your awakening is not going to be complete. So you have to take that apart as well. This is where we get into back into that image of the mirror. You're turning around and looking at yourself and say, oh, this is something I'm doing. I'm adding this unnecessary level, level of clinging even to this experience. The canon has many instances where the Buddha talks about once there has been an insight that you have to turn around and look at the insight itself since you can let the insight do its work and then let go of the insight. This is what that fourth step is in that fourth tetrad, the relinquishment when you drop everything after having solved the problem. There's a passage in Anguttara 4.194 when the Buddha says, you release the mind from the factors that are conducive to passion and also those, are those that are conducive to release. Even things that would give rise to release, you have to let go. In Sangyutta 48.3 and 4, he actually talks about applying that five-step program to the five faculties, which the five faculties are another way of talking about the path. There's the faculty of conviction, the faculty of persistence, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, and the faculty of discernment. And these things are all skillful. You need them on the path. You need conviction in the Buddha's awakening. In other words, that he really did awaken to the principle that our actions are shaping our experience. That gives you the motivation for developing persistence and developing skillful qualities. And that becomes the basis for developing mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. But eventually you have to see that these things too have their origination, they have their passing away, they have their allure, and they also have their drawbacks. Their allure, of course, is the pleasure that comes from developing them. The drawbacks is that they too are fabricated. If you want to get to an unfabricated happiness, you have to let those go as well. In Anguttara 10.93, Ananda Bindaga is dealing with a group of wanderers of other sects, and they asked him, you know, what, is, what, is, what does this Buddha teach? What, what are his views? And Ananda Bindaga, who, who was a stream vendor at that point, says, you know, I really don't know what the, the entirety of the Buddha's views. So, well, you don't know his views. What about the other monks? I don't know the entirety of their views either. Well, what about your own views? He says, well, I'll tell you my view after you've told me yours. And so each of them talks about how their view is either that the world is, is finite or infinite, eternal, not eternal. The soul is the same thing as the body. The body is something different from the soul, that kind of view. And he says, in each case, those views are fabricated. And as long as you hold to that view, and you're holding on to stress. They say, okay, what about you? What is your, what is your view? And his, his view is basically whatever is fabricated is stressful, whatever is stressful is not me, not myself, not what I am. And they say, oh, well, you're, you're holding on to that fabricated view as well. You're holding on to stress. And he says, no, 
you hold on to this, it, you, it'll get you to the point where it forces you to let go of it too. In other words, it's a view where you're looking at the extent to which you're fabricating your experience. First, you look at other unskillful ways that you're fabricating. And then when you've taken care of those, then you turn and you look at this, this skillful fabrication and say, this too is something I have to let go. So this is how we see fabrications with insight. As we see their origination, we see their passing away. We see their allure, we see their drawbacks, and then we see the escape from them. And this applies not only to fabrications of unskillful sorts, but eventually once the path has done its work, you have to apply the same analysis to the path too. So here we see the Buddha's teaching strategy. He uses both personal and impersonal language. He points out the fact, because basically, if he's going to convince you that, it's, that you want to take on his impersonal analysis of fabrications, you have to see that it's to your advantage. And if as long as you're thinking in terms of my world, myself, my, my energy, my participation in shaping my experience the way I want to, you have to see that this is going to be something valuable to take on. So he will talk in personal terms, but then from those personal terms, he says, try to look at the processes of fabrication in simply as fabrications and not the question of who's doing them, seeing them simply as processes in which there is an element of intention. It's not something that's going on totally beyond your control. That's not the type of um, causality the Buddha is talking about. You are making choices. Once the choices, is put into, choices have been put into action though, then you set into motion a whole series of causal factors in order not to be imprisoned by those causal factors. You have to learn how to see them in, in personal terms. So you're looking at fabrications in such a way that avoids issues of becoming and non-becoming. You don't get involved in the question of who's there, who's not there, who is your real self, who are you, or do you not exist? The Buddha says those kinds of questions are a writhing of views, of wilderness of views, contortion of views, and a fetter of views. So use the fabrications, <clears throat> use those fabrications. You view the fabrications, then you use the fabrications of the path, using concentration and insight, to allow fabrications and states of becoming deceased. And then finally you abandon even the fabrications you've been using. That's the final step across the flood. This is the meaning of that statement by John Fung at the beginning of the essay. I told the story of the student from Singapore who wrote saying that he was trying to see the, everything in his life in terms of the three characteristics. He'd be engaged in his work, watching TV, whatever it was always in terms of the three characteristics. And the Buddha said, excuse me, John Fung said, right back to him and says, the problem is not out there and things out there. It's not the things on the TV that are the problem. It's the mind that's labeling things out there as in constant stressful not self. That's the, where the real problem is. So the, the we focus on fabrications, not just as the fabrications come out, but also look at the mind as it's engaged, both in unskillful fabrications and in skillful fabrications. They hold on to the skillful fabrications first. Don't be so quick to let go of them. This is why I said earlier that if you have a desire to practice, be very clear about that desire. Don't be ashamed of it. But there will come a point where you have to let that go. The question is gaining, gaining a skillful sense of, when to let it go. This is one of the main skills of the practice.
if you think of the image of crossing the flood, if you if you let go of the path too soon, you fall into the river and you get swept away. This happens all too often. People say, look at me, I'm not holding on to anything. It's like getting up on the raft and dancing around and saying, see how free I am, and then you fall. The other problem is when you get over to the shore and you refuse to let go of the raft. You just stay there hovering near the shore, but you never quite get over there. In other words, we're not here to arrive at right view. We're here to use use right view. And right view, if it's really right, it's going to get us to the point where we have to let it go. At the end of the essay, I talked about that image that the Buddha gives as the pair of swift messengers. They come into the, into the fortress, into the citadel, and they deliver their message. And they deliver the message. Their message is nirvana. That's important to remember. Their message is not the three perceptions. It's not jhana. And also notice they don't stay. They deliver the messages and they go. But they're welcome back because you're going to be able to use them. As I said, when someone has gained awakening, they st still use concentration. They still use the practice of mindfulness, but without being joined to it. But they use it as a pleasant abiding and they use it for the sake of mindfulness and alertness. And they can also use whatever skills they've developed in order to teach others. You know, look at the Buddha. I mean, he, he came to awakening and he didn't drop his insight in such a way that he couldn't pick it up again, but he picked it up in a different way. It was no longer for the sake of his own happiness. He picked it up for the sake of helping other people find the way. So remember, when we look at the teachings, we have to remember their original purpose. They are there for gaining total freedom. Now remember the image of the mirror. You, when you see that there are problems outside, and there's, there's an issue outside, I mean, this applies in all aspects of the practice. If there's suffering, you're, you don't have to say, what's, what's the problem out there? The problem is, where is the craving? Where is the clinging in my own mind? Now, this is not to say that things outside can, are not bad. Often they can be very bad. But what the Buddha is teaching us is that no matter how bad things are outside, we don't have to suffer from them. The suffering is optional. So in saying that we look inside for the sources of suffering, it's not that he's blaming us for the suffering. He's simply saying that here is your opportunity, even though you, try as you may, you would like to make the world a better place. There are a lot of things that are resistant to making, being made better. But that doesn't mean that you have to suffer along with them. You are free not to suffer. And so when the insights arise, they can help. They can do their work, help you not to suffer. And then let the insights go. Remember, the, the messengers deliver the message and then they leave. That's that final step of relinquishment in the 16 steps of breath meditation. The work has been done, you can let things go. Now the mind will be engaged in fabrication from that point, but as the Buddha said, it's, it's engaged in a different way, with a sense of being disjoined from it. There's an image that's given in, in a sutta where Venerable Nandaka is teaching a group of nuns. The image is not pretty, but it's a very memorable one. He says, you, you have, a, you have a dead cow, and you use a knife, and you, you very carefully remove the skin from the cow. And then you put the skin back on. And the question is, is the skin still attached the way it was before? Well, there is contact between the body and the skin, but there's no attachment. Because all the connective tissue has been cut. So from that point on, you're in, in, engaging in fabrication, but you don't have to suffer from fabrication. 
know how that's possible, you have to ask, you'd have to ask somebody who's totally awakened. But remember, we're, the, the, the take home from all of this is that the Buddhist teachings are to be used strategically. And we use fabrication, and fabrication is done for the sake of something, which means there's a desire behind it. There's, there's, there's even craving to do the path. That's perfectly okay in the steps where that's required. It's only when you get to the point where you don't need that particular form of craving, that's when you can let it go. But remember, we are, we are creating a path here. And so try to do it well. And when it's really done well, then you can let it go. Try to let it go at the right time, not too early, not too late. That requires a lot of sensitivity, but that's what we're trying to develop as we practice. Because an important part of discernment is not you're not trying to just parrot the Buddha's insights, but you're trying to develop sensitivity to the way in which you are shaping your own experience right now. And now you can do it in a more skillful way. And as you get more sensitive to how your lack of skill in fabrication, you develop new skills in fabrication. That's how discernment develops. So that sensitivity is the main thing that you have to work on. So that's the end of the talk for today. Now we have time for questions. Power on. Line in. Do we have any hands? Yeah, so let's see. Can you uh, use your physical hand or blue hand? Uh, Jeff. Yes, Jeff. Uh, yes. Um, hello. Glad to hear this teaching thing. Very, very, very um, practical. Um, um, so you said, if I maybe I didn't quite catch what you said. Thought you said that um, in terms of how to let go of that final thing, you have to ask somebody who's awakened. Did I get that right? No, no. If, if the, the answer, the question was, if to understand how they do that, right, you'd have to ask them, ask somebody who's fully awakened. I, I'm not there yet. <laughs> but how? Uh, where, where, where are we going to find somebody totally awakened? Okay. Well, you try to awaken yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a long shot at this point. It seems. I don't know. I know some people that are a little more mellow than I at times, but. Uh, <laughs> Hey, mellowness is not awakening, okay? <laughs> oh, okay. Well we'll, well, we'll we'll come knock on your door then. <laughs> um, one other quick question. Um, you mentioned uh, this morning that um, if there's an entity around who has died and that they're hanging around, that that's not a good state of affairs for them. Right. And um, I, I'm a, I, I co-facilitate a, a grief support group at hospice. And some of the people who have lost a close, like a, um, a life partner that was their, you know, soulmate or whatever they call it, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, takes great comfort in knowing or thinking that her her deceased husband is still there, and uh, mm -hmm. that's some pretty strong evidence. Like she think holds as evidence, like the the houses in the neighborhood burning uh, up north of San Francisco. All of them except hers. The fire came within ten feet of her house, so she said, "Oh, he must have been mm -hmm. watching." It. So, how do you, or is there a way to help somebody to move on to a, a higher plane or whatever it is that they're supposed to? Do? Okay, well, just um, 
sit and meditate and, and, and basically engage that, imagine that you're engaging that spirit in the conversation. And say, okay, what is it that you're still holding on to? And, and then point out you know, the, the, the drawbacks. So there's, there's a much better life than just sort of hanging around here. I had a very strange experience years back in Thailand. There was a, a family, you know, the grandmother passed away and she had buried some money in, under a tree behind the house. And they had started having dreams in the family that she was telling them to, you know, to come up and dig up, to, dig up the money under the tree. She couldn't go until they, they had dug up the money because she was afraid they wouldn't know where it was. And so sure enough, they dug under the tree and found this, this metal box filled with money. And then she started coming back into the dreams again. And she said, okay, I, I want to go on, but I, one, one more thing is um, I want someone to come and chant the Mahasamaya Sutta. Which, this is an extremely long sutta. Very few people know it. And, and they said, well, we're going to find somebody who's going to do that. And, and, she, and they said, well, there's this woman in town named Rachani who was a student of Ajahn Fuang. And, and she knows somebody. She knows this Western monk who knows how to chant the sutta. <laughs> and so they got in touch with Rachani. Rachani came out to see me. And sure enough, I knew, you know, I knew the sutta. And so I went and I chanted <laughs> the spirit behind the tree. And then a few days later, she came into their dreams and said, thank you, I can go on now. No, you never know. She would probably say, oh, I love you so much. We've had such a, 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 a perfect relationship. I want to be with you or, or whatever. And, and uh, would, I don't know if he'd say he's waiting for her to come or whatever. I don't know. She's pretty healthy. So I don't think she's mm -hmm. going anywhere. But <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. well, well, some people won't let go, you know. Maybe with her encouragement, I, I don't know quite quite how to say that, because most of the people in the group aren't so woo-woo as to believe such a thing that she does. <laughs> it's not woo-woo, come on. <laughs> well, that's what, how they would see it. So I know. <laughs> maybe I'd have to call her on the phone and say, uh, listen, dear. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, good. Thank you very much. Well, get, get her at a private moment, okay? Yeah, well, it's Zooming, so. <laughs> All right, good. Thank, thank you very much. Sure. Uh, Piotr. Okay, hello Ajahn. Uh, I have a question about the 16 steps of, of the um, breath meditation that you mm -hmm. talked before. Um, there was a part about fabricating rapture mm -hmm. and um, like uh, your instruction was to find rapture, find pleasure inside the body in a spot um, and then let it spread but um, is it, can it also be done um, like through thinking and like, uh, like a perception because um, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes in the body there is nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, like everything seems calm. Mm -hmm. The breath seems calm, but this point doesn't come. So what should I do then? Should I try and look or, or should I try think happy, pleasure, something like that or Okay, well, some people find that, you know, just listening to the Dharma gives rise to a sense of rapture. And so you can try that. Or if there's a Dharma theme that you think about that you find really inspiring, you can think about that. Um, what I meant was about having a spot. Is, if there, is, there, is there a part in the body that's very, very sensitive that um, is easily pained? When you breathe in, when you breathe in, is there, is there a part of the body that feels pain? You, you try to nurture that part of the body and, and be very careful around it to breathe in a way that feels good coming in, feels good going out. 
you might try that. Mm -hmm. Now, in my case, I, you know, I've, I've got a heart problem right now, but there's a spot in my heart which is very sensitive to any extra, any extra pressure. So I, I treat that very carefully. And then there's a sense of fullness that comes there when I'm very careful about it. And then that, I can think of that as fullness spreading. But you can also give rise to a sense of rapture, as you say, mentally, by thinking about something you find inspiring that gives a sense of joy. And then notice, and then allow that sense of joy to sort of go through the body. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for, so for me, the big question here is, am I at the point when I can say no to all the thoughts or should I keep investigating? Uh, it's same with the rapture pleasure thing or, or anything in my concentration. So I don't know, like, how do you know? Where, where are you? <laughs> you? You test it. You're, you're willing to experiment. And see what works. If you realize, oh, I let go too quickly, then you go back, pick it up again. But if you can associate a particular thought that you find inspiring with a particular sense of feeling in the body that feels full and satisfied, okay, then, then switch over to the feeling and try to nurture that by the way you breathe. Another way you can do this is think of your hands and think of relaxing every little tiny muscle in both hands so that when you breathe in, there's no tension building up in your hands. And when you breathe out, you don't feel like you're squeezing the breath energy out of the hands. So, and then after all, that sense of fullness will develop in the hands. It's like all the, all the capillaries are full of blood. And then there's a sense of fullness that will be associated with that. And then you can think of that spreading up the arms. Give that a try. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I see uh, Matthew has a question. Um, uh, yes, can you hear me? Yes, go, go for it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Greetings, Ajahn. Hi. Uh, my question is about the jhanas. I know uh, as you were explaining the breath meditation and you described the four parts for the body, you had mentioned reaching the fourth jhana at one point. Mm -hmm. And it came into my mind as you were sharing that um, isn't it the case as we're going through the 16 parts that we have to, um, <clears throat> if we're in a jhana, like a higher jhana two or above, do we have to actually fall back to the first jhana if we're going to the next part, meditation? So that's the first part of my question. Mm -hmm. And then the second part is uh, how important is our awareness of of the jhanas and how does that relate to developing insight? Okay, in terms of the first one, you have to remember that you don't follow the 16 steps one through 16. You've got four, basically you've got four tracks. One track has to do with what's happening in the body as you're meditating. The other track has to do with the happening feelings, mind, and dhammas. And you can focus on any one of those tracks, like focusing on with, with the body. Okay, you get to being, being aware of the whole body breathing in, the whole body breathing out. Well, there's going to be a feeling of pleasure. There's going to be a feeling of rapture. So you, that gets brought in at that time. But you don't abandon that third step of being aware of the whole body. And then as you, you calm bodily fabrication, there will be a, a more subtle feeling of pleasure, which will actually be, be, become a mental fabrication 
that's more subtle, your common metal fabrication at the same time, that's your common bodily fabrication. So you don't, you don't have to re retreat to an earlier jhana in order to pull in some of these other aspects. But then how is it possible to actually recall, okay, this is the next step in, in the body? Uh, just, just one second, just, just one second. Oh, next step is this, go. But isn't that actually um, initial, initial application? Aren't we going back down to initial application? It's, it's pulling out it's just a little bit and then going back in. Okay, so it's like kind of pull out a little to first jhana and then yeah. mm -hmm. you go back. Okay. And sometimes, once you, however, once you get used to this, you don't even have to think about it. You, you will just go in that direction. And as for your second question about the jhanas, they really do give you insight into the process of fabrication. One thing I, didn't, I neglected to mention in the talk this morning is when, when the Buddha talks about the three types of fabrication in relation, relationship to the jhanas, he points out that when you leave the first jhana to go into the second jhana, verbal fabrication falls away. When you leave the third jhana to go into the fourth jhana, um, bodily fabrication falls away. And as you, leave, you go from the fourth jhana into the various formless states, you drop perceptions of the body. So you're beginning to sort of, it's, it's like, John Lee has a great example. He says it's like trying to get different types of metal out of a piece of piece of rock. You put the rock in a smelter, and when it hits a certain temperature, the tin flows out. When it hits a higher temperature, then other metals, copper flows out. A higher temperature, the silver flows out. It's like as you focus on this, you, you begin to see these types of fabrication separating out. You think back in the story of the Buddha gaining, gaining awakening. Remember, when he first went to those two teachers, he learned really high levels of formless jhanas. But apparently he didn't go through the first four jhanas on his way there. There are ways that you can get to the formless states by by bypassing the four jhanas. And apparently that's what happened. Because he went back and said, okay, now I've got to go through those first four jhanas. And it's in those that you see the processes of fabrication as they separate out, as you go from one to another. So this is very useful, because after all, insight is all about seeing the process of fabrication clearly. Okay, so the, the noticing the jhanas helps with insight because then we're actually seeing, you know, we're seeing those fabrications more clearly. Right. What is the category? When are they arising? And and well, it sounds like in, in what you shared, it's more about in that example, what you can see them passing away as you right. go right. higher in the jhanas. Right. But so, so how does that uh, actually relate to, to, to the wisdom, to getting the wisdom or insight into the Four Noble Truths? Okay, Is well, you see that. More you about see that you, just, you, you just realize the arising and passing away phenomenon through repeated experience it's not just arising and passing away you see you, you see what, what was i doing that gave right that i why, why i was engaged in these types of fabrication and how do how was i able to stop because remember insight the four noble truths is not just arising and passing away it's origination you see what was i doing that was causing that and that's where you gain the insight
because when you hit when you first hit those, these levels of concentration it's like nothing's happening the mind is just so still and so calm but then you begin to realize oh there's still a level of fabrication and I, i'm still doing it and that's the other reason why doing concentration like this is good because it makes you more, more sensitive to these processes that otherwise you would have missed one last quick follow-up so sometimes in meditation i can see like the lights and colors come the calmness mm -hmm. comes um it appears to be i don't know my my label would be maybe that's second jhana but in any case my my question is when that happens sometimes i'm not aware what was i just focusing on uh that actually brought about that experience mm -hmm. of this what may be the second jhana mm -hmm. what do we do when when we're we come into some state of concentration, but we don't know how we got there. We don't know what was actually the, that brought that about. Remind yourself, be more careful to look next time. Be more mindful. Okay. Try to Thank be very you, clear about what, try to be alert to what you're doing and while you're doing it. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, Rita. Um, Jeff and Rita. Hello, thank you. Uh, hi, Tana John. First off, hi. thank you for your teachings today. Really appreciate the day. Um, my question is uh, whether or not you could explain the difference between dispassion and equanimity. In my mind, it seems like they're pretty much the same, but there probably are some subtleties that um, maybe you could uh, share a little bit about. Thank you. Okay, equanimity is basically keeping the mind on an even keel regardless of what comes up. Whereas with dispassion, it's more a state that you've, you've been passionate about something, and finally you said, gee, I've had enough of that. You know, like, like the cow that says, well, this is grass, we've been eating grass. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not equanimity. <laughs> in other words, you see you've been engaging in an activity, and you were perfectly fine doing it. And all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, this is, this is totally useless. So the, the equanimous state would be, oh, this is grass, this is fine. This is fine, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the dispassion would be like, this is grass. This is okay. grass. <laughs> <laughs> well, they actually, they actually have a similar image in the canon of a, of a blind man who's been given a dirty piece of cloth. And he's told, this is a nice, white, clean piece of cloth. Take really good care of it. He's very proud. He wears, his, he wears this dirty cloth around, thinking that it's a nice white piece of cloth. And then finally, his relatives take him to see a doctor. The doctor enables him to get his vision back. He looks at this. Oh, my gosh, I've been wearing this dirty piece of cloth. I thought it was clean. That's dispassion. Okay. <laughs> uh, Jerry. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you, uh, Ajahn. It's, uh, I'm not sure how well I followed uh, some of this, if not all of it. But let mm -hmm. so make sure I get, because uh, I don't know if I added my own thing or not, but for fabrication, would it be wrong to think of it as just, not just, but as conceptualization or the storytelling that, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves or we tell others about, is that part of it is how we put the, sort of conceptual storyline around our experiences that end up uh, sort of causing suffering in it because it boxes us in. Is that what mm -hmm. 
what you mean by uh, fabrication? That's one of the types of fabrication. That would be verbal fabrication. The, one of the Buddha talks about directed thought and evaluation as being verbal fabrication. That's what a storytelling is. But it's, it's basically any intentional putting of things together. And this can be even just the way you work on your breath. So there's no story. There's no storyline about the breath. You know, I breathed in and then I breathed out. Then I breathed it in again and breathed out again. There's not much story there, but that too is a kind of fabrication. I would call that conceptualization. Is that off the point? Well, it's 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 the intentional element is the important part. So well, then I, I actually am I am confused, but the confusion will be okay then. Uh, okay. Uh, two quick things. I don't know how quick, but two things. Uh, in the last year, and I was just playing in my mind. I forget the name of the the novel I was I was going to write, but I had to come up with titles. And the subtitle was uh, a non-contextual novel. Mm-hmm. So, what we're talking about today? Well, with, with seeing fabrication simply as processes, yes, it's we're trying to decontextualize. Right. So then this morning, it was interesting because uh, I've, been, I've been sort of extra miserable the last, actually, a couple of weeks and sort of a little concerned about it. it um, and I walking the dog this morning. All of a sudden, I looked around and I was more awake than I've been in a long time. You know, everything was brighter and clearer and the moon was out. And I just stopped and I was about to say, oh, look, and I just stopped myself and just had the experience of not calling it anything, not labeling it, not trying to figure out why this happened uh, at this moment, but just being, enjoying the experience of, uh, of a heightened uh, awake, uh, uh, a heightened state of awake, uh, wakefulness. Is that mm-hmm. stepping outside of fabrication and, uh, and can along the, along the path have more? Well, you've, you've, you've replaced one state of becoming with a different state of becoming. Just sort of me being right here, right now with the moon. That's a state of becoming already. If I don't conceptualize, well, I see. Even if you don't conceptualize it, here I am. There's, there's, it's way in the back of the mind, but it's there. A lot of, this, a lot of these concepts are subconscious. So I'm still, this, I'm still, it's an I experience is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And therefore it's fabrication. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Rick. Thank you. Hi, Ajahn Jeff, and thank you for your teachings. Nice. Lots to unpack there. So I'm going to ask some beginner's questions. Um, okay, great. <laughs> um, one of the things I'm just, uh, as far as two questions, but they're related, and one has to do with the concepts of rapture and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in Baltimore, Maryland, and there was a guy that used to study your teachings, and he introduced me to, to your teachings um, at, around 2014 or 15, and I used to listen to your 40-minute guided meditation, start with the meta, going through the body and feeling the energy centers, and then finally choosing a spot and letting it spread through the entire body and radiate outward and you know into the environment, mm-hmm. or that's how I would imagine it. And then he started talking about rapture and pleasure rapture and i was wondering if because i was never quite sure if that was equated to that sense of energy or, or warmth or whatever it was what exactly is rapture and pleasure how do okay. i know when it, i'm experiencing it? okay rapture 
rapture is large it's basically kind of energy that flows and it, it can have different manifestations sometimes it's just a sense of fullness that permeates the body sometimes there a chill goes up and down the body um, your hair can stand on end um, this will vary from people to person to person i knew some people would actually move around a little bit as a result and that can be pleasant up to a point, but then it's that it, the, the reason there's a distinction between rapture and pleasure is that sometimes rapture can be decidedly unpleasant, just too much of it, when people get too wired through the meditation, which is why you want to tune into, well, what is just pleasant? In other words, it feels, feels okay being here in a nice, steady way. So can they go on at the same time or does pleasure? Yeah, they, they, they can come at the same time, but there will come a point where the rapture becomes too much. And then you want to separate the two out. So my second question is definitely a beginner's question. I, you know, when I first was introduced to this and I was practicing, I was able to experience that to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the line, and I was thinking about this out loud, so I may have answered my own question. But I have been finding for the last couple of years that it's hard for me to relax on the in-breath and to relax on the out-breath. You were talking about this earlier, and I tend to squeeze. Mm -hmm. And um, so obviously, I'm not going to be feeling that sense of rapture or pleasure. Right, right. And I don't know exactly what it is that I'm doing, though I'm going to have to uh, telling myself because I just realized a lot of times what I'll do since I don't necessarily have a bell is I'll say, I say okay so I want to do my abdomen I want to count to do to, to 12 breaths or something like that and then I'll do like six over here and six on the on the sides and stuff like that and I'm wondering if um, I'm fabricating or trying to control the the amount of times that I'm doing it like planning planning um, that's just one possible claim. Yeah, but I'm just looking for some clues on how to get back to a state where I can relax. And let okay, go. One would be, one would be, I said, I'm tell you, so I'm going to focus on the abs as long as I feel like it. It wouldn't have to be 12 or six, or whatever, just no, no, no numbers at all. Just as long as it feels good. And when it no longer feels good, I move over to something else. One, two, someplace in your back of your mind, there's the feeling that if I don't squeeze the breath out, it's not going to go out. That's why you have to squeeze. So just replace that with the perception that says, look, the breath will go out on its own. I don't have to squeeze it. And if there's a sense of fullness in the body that comes in, you breathe in and say, can, can I maintain that sense of fullness? And if any breath is going to go out, it's, it'll go out on its own. I don't have to be responsible for the out breath. So uh, when I'm filling up, even the in-breath, though, is the in-breath supposed to just happen naturally, or can I consciously if you're, if you're, take if you're, if you're going, If you're going to consciously participate in one, I'd say participate in the in-breath, and then let the out-breath go out on its own without any help from you. Okay. Because you, you do want to sort of, I don't want to say pump up the breath energy, but you do want to, you know, bring more breath into the body because we tend to go around depleted with breath energy anyhow. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Ajahn Jeff. You're welcome. Hey, Sayu. Hello, Ajahn. Thank you so much. Um, my question is, um, I think I tend to focus on hindrances to inappropriately so they end up increasing like 
trying to investigate sleepiness and then I get sleepy or, or worrying about worry. Yeah. Um, wondering how to define this inappropriate, uh, inappropriate attention. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess it's opposite of appropriate attention, but I don't know how to think about it. Okay. Um, tell yourself, okay, there's a problem here and I just, I'm going to look at it for a while and not be too great of a hurry to solve it. Because a lot of your, your knee-jerk reactions tend to be, as you said, to worry about the worry, to be, get sleepy about the sleepiness. And say, so in the meantime, instead of trying to make a decision about this, I just want to watch it. I want to investigate this. What is sleepiness? What is worry? Without, without yet saying that I'm going to have to stop the worry or stop the sleepiness. I just want to get to know these things better before I make any decisions as to what I'm going to do with them. Um, okay. Okay. So, I see. Okay. So more of a stepping back and and just say I'm I'm here to I'm here to just understand what it is to be sleepy, understand what it is to be worried, and then you can begin to see uh, that question about what's the allure? Why? What is part of my mind like this? Why does my part of my mind like to engage in the worry? Why is it? Go for the sleepiness. That question is in the back of your mind, because we're not here just to be okay about it. We're we're here to study it so that eventually we can. Once you understand it, then you can do something with it. But you, the, the important thing is you don't just jump in and say, "Well, I've got to do something about this right now." And, and when you haven't really studied the problem. Thank you, John. Okay. Uh, Kiran. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, so, Tanajan, if I'm understanding correctly, uh, there are uh, layers of fabrications, and some of them are, you know, we need to have right now, and many of them we don't. Um, <laughs> so, I'm just constantly trying. So, two two parts. So, in my daily life. For instance, if I see something coming up that's not good, I just I just gonna cut it. Like I don't need this right now. This is not. This is mm -hmm. that's fine. So that that's fine. And then my meditation, um, in my meditation, if it's if it's, I guess the question is like if it's coming up, something is coming up and. I'm not stable enough to kind of investigate it. I'll just mm -hmm. cut it. But if mm -hmm. I'm feeling quite steady, then I can go into it and kind of explore mm -hmm. what's over and the drawback and whatnot. Mm -hmm. That's I'm on the right. That's yeah. If you realize that I'm not ready to take this on, if I can get around it, I'll get around it. Yeah. yeah. Do we, but at some point we do need to. Eventually, you will you will you will need to deal with it, but then you have to know when you're ready. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my body you know, and my body. Yeah. You know the story about the Chinese martial arts master, right? They're going to have a demonstration of martial arts in this pavilion out in the, in the forest, and so the various students go ahead of time, and there's this donkey by the side of the road. 
and they decide, well, let's show off our martial arts skill here with the donkey. And this, you know, the star student goes up and he tries one move and he gets kicked across the road. And then the second student says, well, that's not how you do it. It's gotta be like this. He tries another move, he gets kicked across the road and end up all the students get kicked across the road by the donkey. And so they say, gee, we're, we've got, this is obviously something our teacher has not taught us yet. So let's see how he handles the problem. So they all hide behind the bushes and watch him and he comes, he sees the donkey and he walks way around. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. So there are times when you, you have to say, I, I'm, I can't handle this. I've got to, just got to give it a karate chop, get it out of the way. I'll come back to this later. Yeah. Um, and I just have an, um, another unrelated question. But so for chanting for me, so um, I guess the I guess the question is like something about benefits of chanting as a lay person, if that's a relevant part. Like sometimes I sometimes I'll do like half, most of the time I'll do half an hour of chanting and then I'll sit for a long time. Um, but other times I just don't want to chant. I just want to get into the sitting. And is there any benefit of me always chanting or anything. no that's the, the chanting is there to get the mind in the mood to sit and if you're already in the mood to sit go ahead and sit okay, okay thank you uh, christine hello um i two questions one more conceptual and one just if you have any practice advice um mm -hmm. The conceptual one is at, deals with that final stage that you're talking about of final relinquishment. And while that's not a stage I'm at, it still seems mm -hmm. useful to me it, it, to, to have an understanding of what's happening there. So I just wanted to um, just make see if what I'm understanding is correct. Um, your approach that sort of of this path of being a of freedom coming from a kind of ultimate cessation of fabrication has been mm -hmm. something that's very useful and a framework that I've applied to my practice for quite a while. And it, and it just makes sense in terms of dependent origination that Sankara is there at the first one and that's mm -hmm. when that ceases. Um, so I, you know, in some ways I can conceptualize that the, the freedom, the unbinding is a cessation of fabrication, but is the, and, and again, what you've been saying today is something I, it's not the first time I've considered it, but that while the path requires the experience and the skill of that cessation of fabrication, in fact, in the final step, in fact, fabrication is not the problem, that there's can be complete freedom even with fabrication. Okay, first you have to learn how to drop all fabrications. Right. And then, then you'll know how to pick them up again without, without having a problem. Okay, okay. So there can be, and that's I guess what you're saying, I mean the area yeah. mm -hmm. still fabricating and yet mm -hmm. they're in a state of complete freedom. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, the, um, the practice one is sort of is based around that in terms of my own um, deepest, or at least how I interpret it, deepest experience of cessation, which happened a number of years ago, was one where at least how it appeared coming out of it was 
the sense of fabrication of time had ceased. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I was only aware of the experience as I came out of it, as I felt the, the, the subtle sense of time reforming mm -hmm. and, and experience mm -hmm. sort of, um, coming into shape again. And um, it's not an experience at that level that I've had again. And mm -hmm. I was just wondering if there were any practices that you would suggest that might make that cessation of fabrication of time um, maybe more available. Well, just what I was saying, which is that you get the mind into a state of concentration, and then you, once it's really solid, then you ask yourself, okay, what still here is a disturbance to the mind? Is there an activity that the mind is doing that's causing that disturbance? Can I stop that activity? What happens? And sometimes you go from there to a deeper level of concentration. And sometimes you get to the fact, you get to the point you realize, okay, if I move from here, wherever I go, it's going to be fabricated. If I stay here, it's fabricated. And we're kind of stymied between you can't go and you can't move. Then something may open up. Who's next? Uh, Julia. I can go next. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Ajahn Jeff, um, I have uh, two questions. Um, one is that, you know, sometimes you expand your awareness and then the body seems like have those uh, involuntary, uncontrolled movement. Mm -hmm. And I just want to hear your thoughts on that. And then my second question is around the, your last um, sentence in your talk. You said um, sensitivity is the main thing uh, you have to you have to work on, right? And I want mm -hmm. to understand how is that is that related to um, the you know like when we in a deep concentration in stillness and that is the insight that we gain from either you know level from the level one of jhana, whatever the state might be, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes I I feel very much related to one of the um, person asked a question earlier. Because you get to a certain state, but you don't know how you get there. Sometimes mm. the mind is very still, but I don't feel like I have gained some insights. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so I just want to expand a little bit on your last sentence about the sensitivity. Thing. Okay. Um, in terms of the first question, what kind of movements are you are happening? You can be like you expand your awareness, and you kind of just putting yourself in certain. Uh, and you can shaking your head, you can be doing <laughs> something. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah. If that's that's basically the energy, the energy has been kind of freed up to move in areas where it hasn't been moving before. And so, just let just think that's kind of normal. Don't encourage it, mm -hmm. but don't stop it. And then after a while, it'll stop on its own. And as for the sensitivity, it's, it's precisely that issue of being very clear about what you're doing 
and what the results are. And catching yourself, and sometimes it's like catching yourself out of the corner of your eye. Say, oh, I just did this. So this, this thought came through my mind, or this perception came through my mind. And that's why this happened. This is one of the reasons why having an all-around awareness is a good thing. Because it's almost like these, these thoughts come in or perceptions come in from different directions in the range of your mind. And then, then they will have an impact. <clears throat> and if, if you're focused on one little thing, you're actually missing some of, the, some of the activity that's going on in another part of your mind, which is actually more, actually more influential on what's happening right now. So try to develop this all kind of all-around all awareness. So expand your awareness. Right, well. right. Okay. I mean, in some instances, you, you know, do feel the expansion of the body, right? Feel up the mm -hmm. space and also feel the expansion of the awareness, but still lack of clarity, right? Like, oh yeah, I can be still, but, but where do you go from there? <laughs> okay, well, just keep it very still. And if there's any tiny little thought that comes in, just you can see it, you can begin to see it begin to form into a thought you just got to breathe right through it and it breathe right through it and it and that that makes you more and more alert so marshall yeah this is leanne um also known as marshall my son um, yeah i have a question that go along with um the line of chanting um so i want to ask about mantras um it's very popular in china when my friends know um, who's practicing buddhism and know about my diagnosis, she gave me suggestions of mantras that i could chant um What's the right view of that? I've been staying away from it because I kind of feel like that's not very original um, Buddha's teaching, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure because I didn't get to the bottom of, obviously there's lots of sutta to, <laughs> to mm -hmm. read. So uh -huh. uh, I just started to read the um, Pali Canon. So I want to know from you, your knowledge, that what's the right view towards mantra? Okay, the mantras are words and sometimes you know, the particular sound might have an influence on, on your body. And it, it, depend, it depends on when your friend offered you these mantras, what did she say about the power of the mantra? Where did it come from? Healing. Like the healing. specific ones that she's trying to find things that tailors to healing mm -hmm. disease. Mm -hmm. You might try, try them for a while and see if it has any impact. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, nothing really wrong about it. Okay. If so, um, should I do it in the original language? Or sh because um, the Chinese translator, the monk, the master, will translate, this is one of the things that he said he decided not to translate because he felt that the power is in the language itself. Um, mm -hmm. But there's always meaning, right? But when people back then say it, they know what it means. Mm -hmm. So for us, when we say it, should we say it as if we don't know what it means, just a sound, or should we say it in a meaning way, you know what I mean? You can experiment. <laughs> okay, do both. Hey, yeah, it's always both. the answer, do both. Yes, <laughs> try experimenting. <laughs> okay, thank you. So I see uh, there are a few from the chat. Uh, uh, Jeannie. Oh, hello. Thank you, Ajahn. Hi. Um, 
I have a question about the genres. Um, I don't know them. I know basically what they are about, but would it be important for me to study this and have a deeper understanding of the genres? I think it'd be good just to get a sense of, you know, this is, these are things that the mind can do. And then the first John is not that exotic. You know, that, that guided meditation that I give with the breath, getting, getting to the whole body awareness, working through the breath energies in the body, that's designed to get you into the first jhana. Okay. I will. Okay. And I also see Kate. Uh, go ahead. Yes. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, I, I study in uh, Thailand, in upper country Thailand, and the monks have taught me, I loved your um, thing about the hands and relaxing the hands because that's one thing that I find that really beneficial um, because then everything else follows. But the question I had, the monks there, some of the things I've, I've learned is about um, the six, and I'm, I'm, they're different methods and methodologies, but I wanted your opinion on what you think mainly about I've been learning or I learned there the 28 breathing points are you familiar with that that you breathe into different parts of your body and mm -hmm. it's really been helpful for me and relaxation because then I get out of my my head the ties mm -hmm. say don't feed the monkey in your brain yeah. and um, um, and also we're we're taught which I know is prepare for sitting is the walking and the six very specific six steps that the Thais teach there mm -hmm. at the, mm -hmm. one of the temples in Chiang Mai. And I don't know, I guess my question is just your opinions, your familiarity with that. Is that just a specific uh, methodology that this temple is teaching? Yeah, it's specific to that temple. Um, and the question is, if you find that it, you know, working with these breath points and following the breath of their instructions on walking meditation, if it does help the mind to settle down, it's perfectly fine. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Okay, we've got yeah, four more hands. Let's, let's, let's finish with the four hands and then we'll be done. Okay. <laughs> well, there are more uh, hands coming up. So let's go. Uh, Barb, yes, go ahead. Hi, Tanajan. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, is there a good story like the Thai forest Ajans about developing equanimity? I think it's so interesting how they practice, you know, when they could go wandering around in the old days. Any of them or you? You, you want a story, huh? A story yeah. about equanimity. <laughs> um, well, there's that story about a John Cow. Who was living in a cave and didn't realize there was a tiger that lived deeper in the cave. It turns out that when he was away from the cave, that was the times, those are the times when the, when the tiger would come in and out. And then one night he was doing walking meditation. It was a full moon night. So he was doing walking meditation outside the mouth of the cave and the tiger came. And immediately fear came up into him and he said, okay, which is more dangerous, the tiger or the fear? And he realized, okay, my fear is actually more dangerous. So he said, okay, who, I don't care about the tiger. I'll focus on my fear. And he watched the fear and it was able to get to the point where the fear dropped out of the mind. And they got into very deep concentration, just standing there. 
And then when he came out of concentration, you know, it was a couple hours later, the moon had moved quite a bit and the tiger was gone. So he was able to say, okay, I just let, let, you know, let, let go of the tiger right now. I've got to focus on right here. And that's what equanimity is about. It's realizing, okay, which, which is, where should I focus my attention now? And things that are irrelevant to that, I'm just going to be equanimous about. So, you know, if the tiger ate him, he'd have to be equanimous about the tiger eating. Is that's much less dangerous than giving into the fear? Okay. Yeah, it seems like there's there's so many fears nowadays you can get paralyzed by them. And oh my and gosh, yeah. yeah. Inappropriate attention, huh? Or mm -hmm. especially fears for loved ones that you're responsible for. Yeah. Even worse than fears for yourself, but mm -hmm. you have to just drop that. Maybe it's a good thing for your practice if you learn how to be equanimous about it. Yep. Because you've got to focus on what's really important to you. I think I'd rather have a tiger. <laughs> you've got to focus on what you're responsible for. Right. Thank you. So I have another one from Jeff and Rita. Yeah, thank you. Um, so just a little bit more uh, clarity, please, on this whole sense of uh, I am and um, the, the focusing around how to use this skillfully. Um, and I think what is popping into my head is, is it um, conceit is one of the last elements to leave the mind before it's awakened. Um, all day long, you've been guiding us on practicing with different perceptions of how we're seeing I am, how to adjust to a perception of activity, say verb versus noun. Um, and yet, the, um, partly conventionally, and I'm wondering how much part does the, at least my mind still say I am with all of these activities, even if I'm focusing on just activity and is this action skillful or not, there's still this me that's involved in all this. So I'm just trying to understand the uh, sort of the correlation between the shift, the shifting sense of self, and then getting it to a point where it's um, dispassionate or detached enough to be at such a subtle place in meditation, where that I am is is not strong enough, it is weak enough to find something different, because it just still seems that that is that clinging that's a that's a point of a source of such strength. It, it doesn't seem to, where, where does that eventually loosen? Okay, well, that's, that, that, that's probably your last worry. Your initial worry is, you know, what, what can I do right now that's skillful? And if you can see that you're actually creating a sense of self in a way that is unskillful, say, so I gotta take this apart. See that sense of self as an activity. This is why the Buddha is having you focus on your precepts and your practices. Right. And then you start saying, okay, even this 
sense of self is a construct. And if it's getting in the way of my doing something more skillful, I've got to, I've got to take it apart. And if it's actually encouraging me to do something skillful, I got to hang on. Let it be there in the background. So when you sit down to meditation, you're still taking this sense of self. Do you mm -hmm. think I mean, that's following you in the meditation, no matter yeah. how, say, deep we think we're getting? If there's yeah. still, like, I'm, I'm wondering the switch between leaving meditation and what's going on conventionally, you've talked a lot about mm -hmm. the mind being on that post mm -hmm. and just how long the, the leashes are yeah. before you get yeah. back in. It's, it's going to be there, be there until Arahantship, so learn how to tame it. But it is skillful. So the more one is is working between the meditation and then conventionally the um, seating with just the actions of skillful or non-skillful, is that in itself seating the mind somewhere to loosen that grip on the yeah, I am? Gets it you more, gets you more sensitive to what you're doing, and then eventually you begin to see that your sense of self is a kind of action as well. So the dispassion goes from this coarseness, say sensuality, to finer and finer places of just right. agitation, seeing just right. agitation as a source of suffering or um, say dispassion itself as a source of it. Well, there's still suffering in right. um, dispassion even. So then you go into meditation and you can start on a more, on a subtler, level, which I guess would be why you say jhana is so important, because you're not really right. going to get to that finer place. You could even be fooling yourself. So uh, the last question on that is, what would cause, um, what would cause the mind not to let go of the raft at such a subtle point that it's, a, it's a, right. really a cross? Pride. Pride. So a very subtle attachment to conceit. Yeah. Yeah, my, my insight is really good. <laughs> Will it be that clear when you find, well, when it finally recognizes? Well, it, it's it funny. It's these little voices in the back of the mind. They're very quick and very subtle. They're like subliminal messages on TV. But wow. pride is... But it's that clear when the mind yeah. finally sees that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Maria? It's okay, I, I, I pass. Okay. And then the last one will be Karen. Hello, Ajahn. Thank you very much for your talk. I have a question about um, attention. My um, interpretation of my attention if I keep it um, un un unfocused very broad um, I can see better what's going on when I try to zoom in my attention seems to fabricate a lot so when it's almost that I feel like I have to peek at things from behind the veil in order to see them more clearly without disrupting them. 
that's pretty much how you're going to get insights into what the mind is doing that it hides from. Thank you very much. Okay, well, everyone, thank you for your attention. Hope this has been helpful. Yeah, thank you, Ajahn. And uh, I see your video is off. Um, I'm not sure if that's intentional. No. Oh, <laughs> oh there you are. Okay, there you go. There's been definitely diff different uh, sati set for events with you. Okay, may everybody be well. Thank you, Ajahn. Be well. Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody take care. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, feel free to unmute and say hi, say bye. Well wishes. Thank you, Ajahn. It need to be longer. We can have more discussion. Girl you even talked about some of the things.